Heavenly Father, give us the undivided heart and undivided mind so that when we receive your word and when we read your word, that God, you will help us through your Holy Spirit to have the strength to respond to your word and grant us the joy that we have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's passage is from Romans 1. Uh, Romans 6, verse 1 to 14, and it's a key topic on the union with Christ. In fact, when Romans 6 started, you can start to notice that Paul, he was clearly troubled. In fact, his emotions can be felt when he started off his verse, first sentence in verse 1. Look at verse 1 of Romans 6 with me, and you can start to feel that Paul is charged up emotionally and he's troubled. And this is what verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, if we, to, if we were to unwrap this verse, it is basically saying this, Is it alright to keep sinning because God will always forgive? Is it alright to keep sinning because God will always forgive? Now, where did the idea of this question comes from? It actually comes from the last two verses of Romans 5, where Paul, he was speaking about God's grace. In fact, let me read Romans 5, verse 20 for us. Paul, just before Romans 6, said this, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now what Paul was actually saying in Romans 5 was this, he was talking about the magnitude of God's grace. He's saying that as sin increased, because of law, God's grace increased all the more and it is big enough to cover even the greatest sin. So when Paul was talking about Romans 5, he's showing us the magnitude of God's grace. But we all know, isn't it, that whenever something good comes, um, there's a chance for abuse. And that's where chapter 6 begins. Since God's grace is so big that it can cover the greatest sin, then surely it's alright to keep sinning because God will always forgive. Now, this question, verse 1, is actually a very, very dangerous question to linger on because a question like this, if you long, linger long enough, the question mark goes off. And I don't know about your experience, but were there times where we kind of knowingly sin, whether in thoughts, action, deeds, or decision, there's that voice that says, it is alright. God will forgive you this time. You notice that although this is a question, but if we linger it on enough without engaging with a truth, the question mark gets um, dropped off and it becomes a statement. So Paul, in re response to verse 1, he gave a very emotional and very strong answer. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. Look at verse 2. In reply to that question, Paul says, no. In fact, in NIV, Paul's answer is, by no means the King James, God forbids. Other translations says, may it never be, absolutely not. In fact, Friday Bible study, they came up with the Hokkien version, which I will not repeat to you, but you get the drift, right? Paul's emotion says, no, no, no. The answer to that first question, is it alright to keep sinning because God will forgive? And Paul's answer is, no. 
Paul is not just giving a theological reply. If you read the way he writes it, he's speaking with a strong emotions that actually comes out from his very heart. It's like a dad who is emotionally charged up. Uh, and he says no to the child when he asks for something wrong. Paul says no, and he summarizes what is wrong before he takes a breath and explains why it is wrong. So look at verse 2. Paul continues, We are those who are dead to sin. How can we live in sin any longer? We who have died in sin when we become Christians, how can we sin any longer? Because the truth is when a person becomes a Christian, when we become a Christian, we become dead to sin. And Paul brings his hearers to the very beginning of all our Christian lives, which is verse 3. Look at verse 3. He draws us all to how we first started. Verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now this, this verse needs a bit of explanation because in our modern Christian life, Christians, sometimes we profess as Christians uh, much earlier than we actually baptize, right? So we believe we are Christian, but we, we haven't baptized until after a while. But in Paul's time, it's not the case. They actually baptize as their profession that Jesus is now their Lord and their Savior, their King and their Rescuer. It comes together. Their baptism was their profession at that time. And what is baptism? When Paul tells them about baptism, they knew what is baptism. It's not just being dunked in some kind of pool of water, right? But rather, when we are baptized, we are turning away from sin as our master, and then we are declaring Jesus is our king and our rescuer. He's both the one who rescued us, and he's the one that is now our king. And then we surrender all of ourselves to Jesus. We give all of what we are and all of what we have and all of our sin to Christ. And in exchange, we receive all that Christ is into us. That's our baptism, isn't it? When we come under the Lordship of Jesus, we become united with Him at baptism. And look look at verse 3 to verse 4. What is happening at baptism when we are baptized in Christ, we become totally drenched and immersed into Christ, into His death and into His burial. It is amazing, isn't it, that our baptism gets links to the death of Christ on the cross. For, what, for that is where He took all that we have, all our sin, and He brought it with Him up on the cross. And that's the symbol of our baptism. All the punishment we deserve, He pays for it with his own death. And that is the Christ we have, isn't it? And that is what baptism is telling us. What an amazing, amazing God that we have. And that's where Paul draws his explanation on. Now, if you if you look on verse 3, verse 4, Paul not just mentioning mentions death, right? He also mentions buried. Why, why bother to mention this? I think it is to emphasize that just as Christ was well and truly dead. We and our sins, like Him, was well and truly dead. So how can we live in sin any longer? That's what Paul's answer is. But more, 
of that than this, isn't it? Look at verse 4 and verse 5. There's more than just being truly dead. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live or we too may walk a new life. Now, someone once called baptism uh, a naming testimony. It's a bit like when you first have a baby, uh, you gather and it says his name is called John. Right? It's a naming testimony. Baptism, someone has called it to be like a naming testimony because we are being included into a new family at a baptism. Isn't it what Matthew 28 tells us? That we were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we were baptized, we were baptized into the name of God. And we carry a new family name at that point, along with all the benefits that we can have under this new family. So when we are united with Christ, He not only deals with our sin, He deals with our new life. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, we now have a new life in Christ. And this union with Christ that baptism symbolizes is both the very beginning and the very foundation of our Christian faith. And that's where Paul draws in. And baptism is meant to burn in our hearts that we are already united with Christ, that we have already participated in the Lord's death, His burial, and as well as His resurrection. Verse 5 tells us we are united with Christ in a resurrection like His. This is the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ that we have received when we first become a Christian. This is the gospel we receive when we enter God's family and takes after Christ's name. We are now named after Christ, isn't it? What do we call ourselves? We call ourselves Christians. We carry the name and we bear the name of our King and our Savior. And we finally knew or finally knows at that point where our loyalty actually lies where our loyalty actually lies, to the one who loves us, who saved us, who died for us, who rose from the dead, so that we may have new life. And that is God. And that is Christ. That's why Paul's verse 2 is so emotional. When he hears the word, is it alright to keep sinning because God will forgive? And his answer is not the kind of theological, it's very personal. He says, no, it is it's a very personal, in fact, it's a family business, if you put it, when he answers that question, not as a theologian, but as one who is a family under God. He says, we are dead to sin. How can we continue to live in sin? You know, as, a, as a, any good father would do, right, that Paul, as a good spiritual father to a younger Christian, he starts to explain more. What does being dead, dead to sin um, actually mean and what does having a new life actually mean and that's where he continues he deals with this how are we dead to sin in verse 6 to 7 and then he explains how are we alive in verse 8 to verse 10 so let's look at verse 6 to 7 uh, together first um, Paul has more to tell us how we are dead to sin look at verse 6 uh, and 7 as I read it to us for we know that our old self was crucified with him, 
so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Who is this old self in verse 6? Who is this old self in verse 6? It is who we were when we carried the debt we need to pay before we received Christ. Our old self in verse 6 was us when we were still slave to sin who obey every whistle from our sin master. Our old self in verse 6 was us when we were under the wrath of God deserving death. Our old self in verse 6 was us united to Christ as we surrender ourselves to Him as our King and our Rescuer. And our old self in verse 6 was us whom Christ took upon Himself as He went up to the cross to pay for that price. But that was our old self. For when Christ united Himself to us, He took our old self and He gave us Himself. He took our sin and our punishment and then He gave us His righteousness and new life. I just want to take a moment to pause and think about the power of this death on the cross where our old self was crucified with Christ in verse 6. But let me first give an illustration using the power of physical death that we are familiar with, either as a second party or a third party. And we all know that death is very powerful. We are either a third party who witnessed the power of death, or we are a second party who have been impacted by the power of death. Because death breaks every kinds of relationship. Even the strongest relationship you have, when death comes, it breaks it. What's the strongest relationship you have? Blood relationships between parents and children, between husband and wives. But when death comes, he cuts off that relationship. Even the best marriage cannot sustain death. Even the most loving dad cannot hold on to the child. God forbids if death comes earlier than him. That's why the Bible says even widows and widowers are allowed to remarry. Because when a widowed person loses a spouse, no matter how he or she waits, he can never or she can never retrieve that relationship. Because what happens? Death came and he totally breaks off that relationship. There is no turning back. And this is where we read verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ. Something powerful happened at the cross. Because at the cross, our old self was crucified with Christ and our old self died. Our relationship and our ties with sin as a master was permanently severed on the cross. There is no turning back. No matter what sin cries out, he loses the relationship when our old self died on the cross with Christ. The relationship between us and sin with our master ended permanently when Christ died on the cross. 
And this is how we need it to understand the rest of verse 6 and verse 7. Let's look at verse 6 to verse 7. So the body ruled or dominated by sin might be done away with and we are no longer slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So because of the cross, our relationship with sin is destroyed. Sin, our ex-master, no longer demands or can demand anything for us. Our body that was once under the rule of sin is no longer under his rule anymore. There's a um, theologian by name Sinclair Ferguson. He gave this illustration, but I need to rephrase it because I can't remember it fully in his content. And he says this, This body, when it was under the rule of sin, used to be a fertile soil for the seed of sin to grow. But when we die on the cross, this body changed. The soil has changed. The seed of sin that plants there is like on a concrete ground. There's no way the seed can grow. No matter how much seed you dump on it, it cannot grow because the fertile soil uh, has changed to a fertile soil for God. The one who is standing there as the gardener is Christ. And it's not sin anymore. And that's why even bodily, we can fight sin. Because Christ reigns in us and the seed of sin cannot share the same soil as Christ our King. But it is important, isn't it, for us to differentiate between the presence of sin and the reign of sin. Because the reality, the presence of sin is still around. There's still plenty of slaves that sin has, and his whistling is still going on. But the reign of sin in us is gone. The soil doesn't feed the seed of sin anymore. We have been set free from sin. Verse 7. Thanks be to God. And that is not done by us, isn't it? That is done totally by Christ. So while verse 6 and 7 explains how we are dead to sin, Paul goes on, verse 8 to 10, he tells us how we are alive to God. So look at verse 8 to verse 10 together with me, how we are alive to God. In fact, let me read verse 8 on for us. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. For we know that since Christ has been raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. See how verse 8 reminds us again of the gospel and our union with our King and our Rescuer. With Christ we die, with Christ we live. And because of Christ, in verse 8, in death and in life, we are united with Christ. And here is where verse 9 and verse 10 comes in. So although it's speaking about Christ, uh, it, verse 9 and verse 10 becomes applicable also to us because we are in Christ. When Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die. Death no longer has mastery over Christ. So in the same way, death no longer has mastery over, over us. What's the worst thing that can happen to our mortal body? The worst thing that can happen it's death with his sting, give us a big punch in and we physically die. But what happens after that? What death does 
is only to move us closer to our resurrected body, which will never die. The same way as Christ, once he was raised, he can never die again. So death in itself has lost the ultimate weapon on us because the sting that he can hit on us is only being used to bring us into the resurrected body that we have been promised. And because of that, we are really free to be able to live for God. And it is a liberating truth, isn't it? Because before we are in Christ, this is not true for us. That is why it's all important, all the more important we say no to verse 1. Is it alright to keep sinning because God will forgive? No way. Because verse 10 tells us that the death of Christ and so our old self, He died to sin and our old self did too. And now He lives for God. And because Christ lives to God, we too live our new life to God. What relationships do we still have with sin? What threats or what promises are there still left that sin can offer us? And what whispers into our ears can sin whisper that we want to go back to sin? So in verse 2 to 5, Paul uses baptism to remind us of our union with Christ. 6 to 7, he tells us how we are dead to, cro- dead to sin on the cross. And 8 to 10, he tells us how we are alive because we are in Christ. And so he moves on to verse 11 to 14. Paul tells us how we are now to live out this new life in God. Which means we are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So look at look at verse 11 with me. Because verse 11 is just affirming what we have inferred for ourselves in verse 8 to 10. Verse 11 says this, So in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourself. The word count sometimes is used, uh, translated as regard. Regard yourself or used as recognize. Recognize yourself that you are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is what has been said of Christ from verse 9 to verse 10. He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives for God. And verse 11 reminds us, so we died to sin once and for all, and now we live, we live for God. It affirms what we have just said. And Paul is not asking us to kind of do an imagination, right, or bring a beat or something to chant it long enough that it becomes a reality. Paul is saying, recognize that this is a reality. Recognize that this is the truth, because we are already branded with the name of Christ when we became a Christian. And so verse 12 to verse 13, now start to pull back the curtains finally, after um, Paul has said all this, he pulls back the curtain and reveals the two master, our ex-master sin and our new master God. Let me read these two verses for us. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any parts of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. You know, verse 12 to 13, it actually in its original word, it carries kind of a military kind of flavor and context to it. When you read the word offer or present, it, is, um, it carries a tone of swearing, uh, swearing allegiance. 
and the instrument actually can be translated as weapon. Okay, so um, um, I think Pastor Andrew gave me this really good uh, illustration. When you think of the scene in verse 12 and verse 13, you can imagine a samurai warrior, right? What's most precious to a samurai warrior? His sword. So when he offers his sword to his master, it's not just the sword, isn't it? He's giving his total allegiance to the one he's offering um, his service to. And so Paul is really saying we are no longer under the reign of sin. So what should we do? We should not, we must not let sin reign again because our sword has been given to our new master. Do not offer ourselves as weapons for wickedness, but rather now we offer ourselves to God as He was the one who brought us from death to life. Therefore, we offer ourselves as weapons of righteousness. So back to verse 1. Is it alright to keep sinning because God will forgive us? The answer must be no. Because we are dead to our ex-master and we are living for our new master who we call our heavenly father. Now the, the question must come in then, why does Paul even bother to give this instruction? Why does he still say verse 12 and verse 13? Why does he still re- need to remind us of our two masters? I think the answer is this. Because although the objective truth is an instant on the cross, where we become a Christian, uh, we have died to sin and we have been raised to Christ, our, it takes a lifetime to actually respond to that truth. So it takes a moment for the objective truth to happen. It takes a lifetime for us to live according to that truth. While we are still in our mortal body, the voice of sin can still be heard. Have you heard him recently? Uh, His voice is still loud there. But the voice of sin, he can stir up all emotion and even desires, asking us to remember that we were his ex-slave. I once heard a story of a Christian uh, brother, he's a Christian worker in northern Thailand. Um, I, I know him, but I've never verified this story, but I heard it from someone very close. And he says, uh, and people tells me, this brother in northern Thailand, whatever you do, never ever disturb him in his sleep. Because if he gets stirred in his sleep, the first thing he does before his eyes are open is to move his hand and grab your throat. Okay, so whatever, don't try, don't call the kids because that is his natural reaction. He, before his eyes is fully open and he's to, totally awake, he grabs your throat. And I realized, and I heard, and I understood that the reason was before, before he was in northern Thailand, he was across the borders and he was involved with war. And every time he closed his eyes, um, death threat is always there. He doesn't know if he opens his eyes, is it his friend or his enemy next to him. So even though he has moved long after, in a safe ground, in a church, serving, in his most unguarded moment, his reaction is to hear the voice. So, never disturb him when he is uh, asleep. Uh, I think it is true for us, isn't it? Even though we are becoming united with Christ, the battle has already been won on the cross. There will be real occasions, including this very week ahead of us, when the voice of our ex-master can still be very real, calling out to us, stirring our desires, calling us to respond to him. But when that happens, we need to pause and recognize the truth of who 
we are and where we are and who we belong to. Because when we are united with Christ, on the cross, the old man is dead. And on that first Easter that we always celebrate during Easter, our new life has already begun. And that is who we are. And that is what a new life we have. In the past, we can only speak, we can only work, we can only think for ourselves. And behind it is sin. In the past, we can only offer ourselves an instrument of wickedness. But now every part of ourselves can be instruments to glorify God. Whether it is at home, at our workplace, at school, at gatherings, whether we are a stay-at-home mom, whether we are a student, whether we are a teacher, whether we are a neighbor, a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, a worker, we can live and glorify God, which in the past we could never do. So every part of us and all our possessions can now be used for godliness, to proclaim Jesus. We can use them to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, showing the rest who are still slaves to sin that there is a better master and he's God. So how do we actively refuse our evil desires? How do we refuse to be used uh, as instruments of wickedness? I want to draw us to today's passage and notice what Paul never does. He never splits Dying from dying to sin and living for God. He always put these two things together. Dying to sin doesn't leave us hanging. He always continues living to God. It comes together. He never ends with one without the other. So when we actively refuse the desire of sin and refuse to be used as instruments of wickedness, it must come together that we will use ourselves, be offered to God and for instruments of righteousness. So we need to remember verse 11. If if there's one verse you can remember today is verse 11. We are dead to sin and alive to God. So like a samurai warrior, isn't it? Or a soldier, we wear the crest of our master and we refuse to entertain the voice of our ex-master. In God's kindness, we are doing this as a family of God together. Um, as an army of God, we have been given to each other so that we can run this race together and for us to be able to focus together. And the reality of this command makes our answer uh, all the more important that we will not give in to sin. And it makes the reality of our fellowship, whether it's one-to-one, whether it's our small group Bible study, whether it's Sunday gathering, all the more precious. Because that's how we are able to stay focused and to be reminded of the truth. And that's the reason why we are given the Bible that we read and we meditate daily and regularly. Well, this this Bible, or what we do, is not to make us religious people, isn't it? It's not to make us look good. It's not to make us less guilty when pastor comes. Have you read your Bible? It's not. It's actually for us to be able to fight this good fight, that the truth stays close to our hearts, to our minds, and that we are ready whenever the whisper comes, we have a ready answer to say, shut up. Isn't it? So as we pause here and about to close, perhaps can you and I think of areas in our lives that we really need to resist sin this week? You know, sometimes we feel like a failure when we struggle with sin. It's hard and the voice of sin is real. But I want to encourage the reality of truth is far from that. The very fact that we are struggling with sin 
and saying that you are not my master, it glorifies God because we will never do that in the past. Temptation is never a temptation until you fight with it. And temptations are for real Christians. Struggles are for real Christians. Because we say, shut up, you're not my master. God is my master. So even in a struggle with sin, it glorifies God. And at the same time, it's a two-sided thing, isn't it? That we continue to think, how can we this week, uh, individually as a, a small group, as a church, how can we glorify God as instruments of righteousness? Perhaps it's to pray for the mission um, partners that we have in Vietnam. I think we have heard it last week. Perhaps it's to pray for our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution. Perhaps it's to encourage one another to keep on keeping on. I remember when I was um, in working in in uh, the CBD probably eight, nine years, I used to meet up with Jeremy Cher. Because sometimes at work, you get very frustrated, but you don't want to say anything, right? Because you want to protect, your, you want to keep your tongue there. So I'll meet Jeremy and say, ah, Jeremy, it's so tough. And I'll make sure that whatever I tell you, he doesn't know who I'm talking about, so that we can pray about it, right? So I think it's great. Sometimes we meet each other, and we use our instruments for righteousness. We use our instruments to commit it to God and to glorify God. Perhaps this week, it's just to think, ah, oh, who can we meet? Uh, just to pray and just to read the Bible, have a meal together, and to be encouraged in Christ. So let me close um, with verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. So Paul draws our relationship between sin and grace. Sin is no longer master. We are no longer under the law. But God is our master. So while still in our mortal body, there is work to be done. And that's why this passage is given to us. But Paul also tells us that we are united with Christ. And that's the power we have to respond to God because our life is always directional. While we are in a mortal body, our life is always directional, isn't it? We are always facing something. In the past, we face sin, we run after sin, and we obey and use our instruments for sin. And law is there waiting, counting the number of sins we have done. And then he can say, yes. Death is waiting for you at your last breath. And while we're running to sin, the only two motives we can hold on is what? YOLO and FOLLOW, right? You only live once. For myself, I must live it. Or FOLLOW, F-O-L-O, right? Fear of losing out. I learned it from the young people. It says, fear of losing out. So all the resources you have, you make sure that you don't give up too much. Keep some for yourself because you might lose out. That, but that's the only way when you're facing sin to live. You don't have an option. What other options do you have? You don't have. This is the only way. But now, when we are facing God and running to Him, we're running towards the kingdom of God, the promised resurrected body that God has, running to a king that we long to see, who has died for us, who has loved us, who has saved us, who has prepared a place for us. And we are able to give what is so temporal to be traded for something that's eternal, the salvation of others. And guess what? And the beauty of grace comes in that as we run to God, we should not, but when we fall, grace is there to hold us and make sure we carry on. In this place, law is ready to condemn you. Here, grace is ready to hold us and help us finish the race facing God. So verse 14, For sin shall no longer be our master because we are not under law but under grace. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for our union with Christ. 
and the amazing thing that Christ has done for us. All done for us, nothing we have done. So God, as we have received this wonderful union with Christ, and we give Him all the trash that we have, and He gave us all the goodness that we do not deserve, that God, we can live this life in confidence that You are our Master, and sin is not our Master. We know the voice is still there, but we know that our hearts are no longer soiled for sin. But God, give us a mind that's undivided, a heart that's undivided, so that the seed of sin does not fall in us, but the seed of the gospel grows in us, that we will flourish and that the gospel of truth may come out from every part of our lives, that this mortal body that is so temporal can be used to draw in people for eternity. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.